You're listening to Navigating Major Programs, the podcast that aims to elevate the conversations happening in the infrastructure industry and inspire you to have a more efficient approach within it. I'm your host, Ricardo Cosentino. I bring over 20 years of major program management experience. Most recently, I graduated from Oxford University's Thaid Business School, which shook my belief when it comes to navigating major programs. Now it's time to shake yours. Join me in each episode as I press the industry experts about the complexity of major program management, emerging digital trends, and the critical leadership required to approach these multi-billion dollar projects. Let's see where the conversation takes us. James Michael Bernard, commonly known as Jim, is a highly accomplished professional specializing in real estate investment program design, structured finance, risk leadership, and strategic partnership formation. With an impressive track record spanning over 25 years, Jim has accumulated more than $4 billion in real estate investment experience. Currently, Jim serves as a partner at Two Road Groups, a consultancy he co-founded with a focus on disrupting traditional approaches to major program management by employing novel and empirically supported methods for risk mitigation, decision-making, and stakeholder engagement. He also serves as a major program management advisor for iCumulus. Additionally, Jim is the founder of DeRigo, a privately held investment company that concentrates on sustainable real estate assets. Outside of his professional pursuits, Jim actively engages in community service as a member of the Town of Castine Planning Board and serves as a director on the SMU Cox School of Business Alumni Board. He is also an accomplished diver and a skilled jazz pianist. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Navigating Major Programs. I'm here today with uh, my co-host, uh, a guest appearance from uh, Corel, um, with uh, my uh, esteemed colleague and uh, friend, Jim Bernard, who has uh, gracefully agreed to join the podcast today and uh, talk to us about his new venture and his new approach in helping major programs. How are we doing, guys? How are you doing, Jim? Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hi, Ricardo. Corel? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me again, and I'm excited to hear more about Jim today. And, and by the way, today we, uh, we're joining the podcast. I'm, I'm, I'm in Toronto, Jim is in Maine, and Corel is in London, so you got a truly international episode. Yes, very much so. So why don't we, why don't we jump right into it? Uh, Corel, I, I, I think you're going to help me co-host today's episode, a new format for us, uh, but you being a guest on this uh, show before. So I think you're, you're almost at home. You're almost, uh, almost part of the, the family. Why don't you take it away? Hi, Jim. Uh, I hope you're well. Uh, nice to see, to see you and hear you. Uh, I wanted to ask, can you please uh, introduce yourself to our listeners today and tell us a little bit about your career? Sure. <clears throat> It'd be my pleasure. Uh, my name is Jim Bernard. I'm uh, uh, fortunate to have been a classmate uh, with your uh, two esteemed hosts here at the University of Oxford in the um, major program management program at Said Business School. Um, how I came to the program, um, let's see, I was a CFO for a real estate, um, sustainable real estate investment development company in Austin, Texas, uh, for about five years before I applied, uh, to Oxford. 
Uh, my background had always been in real estate. I'd done it since I graduated uh, from university. At the time, we were uh, struggling with some fairly common major program themes. Complexity, our projects were getting more difficult, uh, more intricate, larger. We were having um, challenges scaling. So um, interestingly, I was sitting in a conference room trying to sketch out a, a risk curve with my team uh, in the finance department to try to figure out where we had some significant exposure. And uh, one of my coworkers looked at the whiteboard and said, you know, there's a whole program at the University of Oxford that takes on these questions directly. So I, I bet him that if, if he would write a recommendation, I would make the application under no circumstances did either one of us think that we would be, uh, or that I would be admitted to the program. But here we are two years later, having survived it. And uh, fortunately, having had the chance to work with uh, great people like the two of you and learn a whole lot about managing major programs. Yeah, congratulations, Jim. You did, I think, wonderful in the program. And it was really interesting, you know, to hear about your experience throughout and um, your background. Um, I was wondering, like, I think uh, we we both know, Ricardo and I, that you started an uh, entrepreneurial adventure after uh, the program. Um, can you tell us a bit more about what led you to start your own business after the program? Um, and why are you particularly interested in consulting in the field of major programs? Well, in the interest of full disclosure, I have to admit that I haven't started this alone. Um, in fact, you both probably know very well some of the uh, the people that are um, investing in the in the consultancy with me, uh, and that alone is a privilege. So the uh, opportunity to work together with like-minded colleagues who've uh, enjoyed similar professional backgrounds uh, or have had uh, similar professional backgrounds was probably one of the primary reasons why I decided to um, start this uh, consulting practice. But um, really, the I guess the motivation came out of, uh, believe it or not, the global financial crisis in 2008. Um, a couple of us back in Austin with this real estate development company that I mentioned, uh, we basically we'd all lost our jobs. Uh, you know, the industry was kind of in shambles. So at that point, we decided we'd, we'd get together, kind of start at ground zero. Um, and I think maybe we had 200 or we had $2 million in assets at the time. And 10 years later, we were up to $250 million in assets. So uh, to kind of get back to some of the scaling challenges I mentioned earlier. Um, but that experience of, of one, having uh, an industry job um, and then losing it quickly, uh, in rather chaotic circumstances, and then having built up the other company uh, over that period of time sort of gave me a sense that, one, uh, security in, in major companies undertaking major programs is not always as secure as you might think it is, uh, and two, there's not necessarily as much risk in starting your own, in your own venture as you may uh, think there is. So the chaos of that prior period in my career gave me the confidence to, to start um, this new consulting practice with um, the folks I mentioned previously. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of where it all came from. In terms of goals for the program, I mean, the, the whole podcast is focused on major program risk and making major programs uh, function more effectively. Certainly in my career and in the careers of the uh, colleagues that have joined me in the group, we've seen plenty of complexity and we've seen plenty of poor major program performance. So the idea behind the group, uh, at least for me, was to be able to use a lot of what we learned at Oxford and try to address 
these issues at meaningful points of intervention. So um, being able to offer that to a variety of clients at a variety of different industries uh, was appealing and seems rewarding. Yeah, that's amazing. That sounds super interesting. Um, can you tell us a little bit more uh, about what you're offering in this consultancy then and, and you know, how uh, you feel like you're apart from other consultancy? What puts you apart? Sure. Broadly speaking, I think what separates our consulting practice from um, maybe some of the other ones out there would be our combination of gray hair and battle scars, uh, domain expertise on the, on the one hand, uh, having worked in all of these areas professionally, as have you know, my, my uh, colleagues in the practice, uh, but also the academic basis. So one of I, I had an MBA before going to still do uh, MBA before going to Oxford. So I was familiar with the professional graduate school curriculum and approach, particularly in the United States. Um, well, Oxford is obviously very different, but one of the things uh, within Oxford that truly distinguishes it, um, particularly the MMPM, uh, is the research background. So we not only had to uh, justify our opinions professionally, but we had to support them academically as well. So when we formed TRG, both of those aspects uh, became mutually supportive and, and critical to the practice. So we, we try to bring a whole lot of domain expertise in a variety of different fields and circumstances uh, and marry it with the best academic research that we can find and then um, do some of our own research. So uh, hopefully we can keep the practice as progressive as possible and as, as helpful as possible. Yeah, I, I really like uh, the fact that you're trying to combine this uh, academic side of uh, the field with your practice, you know, and the, the, the kind of uh, practical aspect of, of being a major program leader every day. So um, I, I wanted to ask with what you've learned in Oxford and what you're doing in your current con consultancy, uh, what do you think will be the main area of improvement for major programs in the future? It's an interesting question because I think um, it's geographically dependent to some extent. Um, and by that, I mean the whole concept of program management is really not understood, even conceptually, on uh, this side of the Atlantic. In the UK, uh, major program research has been around for quite a while. I mean, clearly the program's been around for quite a while, but... Um, the, the subject itself certainly goes back a long way, and the UK government has adopted over the years many uh, major program management um, practices. So in that area, in the UK in particular, um, major program management is understood uh, as a discipline as well as um, its, its value is understood. And they've, uh, the UK government in particular and obviously Oxford have invested a lot in refining the uh, subject and practice. In the U.S., it's very different. The concept of program management really hasn't entered the uh, collective experience, I guess. Major programs are still heavily engineering-based. Uh, project management is a very familiar term, and certainly there are enough people who uh, engage in project management that get very frustrated by some of the program management aspects that it's not so much that they're beyond their purview. It's just the project managers are, as they should be, laser focused on delivery. 
um, you know, on time, on budget, uh, and aren't necessarily positioned to deal with the externalities that can influence that delivery schedule. So one of the bigger challenges I think we have, uh, at least bidding on projects in the U.S., is making the case for program management being part of uh, any large mega project. There's definitely a sense that improvements need to be made, particularly when you start talking about less quantifiable aspects like stakeholder engagement, kind of broader community outreach, um, communication, change management. I mean, a lot of these very established business practices that are at least familiar in the consulting world per se, but may not have made it into the major program management world. Um, so the, the, the big opportunity and I guess challenge, at least again in the U.S., is sharing this field and the insights that it can provide with some of the larger project constituencies and uh, really you know, help the programs perform better than they have been traditionally. You mentioned the United States, but I'm in Canada, and I, and I think what you describe is really a North America phenomenon where major programming, they're just not viewed as a, as a discipline in itself. Would you hazard a, a guess why that is in North America? How come, I always say Canada is at least five to 10 years behind where the UK is. Um, I haven't quite been able to explain why North America is, is behind. Um, um, one hypothesis I have is just the way major projects are funded. Mm -hmm. They're not funded centrally like the UK. And therefore, create uh, doesn't create a center of knowledge like the UK has with treasury. But do do you have any view on that? That's a really good point. The centralization of a lot of the biggest projects um, in the UK, I think you're onto something there. I mean, that that would explain why there's been so much investment, at least in part, why there's been so much investment in trying to understand kind of the major program management phenomenon. Uh, in the U.S., we obviously, I guess, in a, as in a lot of other places, have a robust private sector um, that very active builds a whole bunch of different things. And then we have the public sector, which is probably more focused on what you'd consider traditional infrastructure. Uh, and then, you know, your private public partnerships for, for large events and stadiums and that type of thing. The U.S. is a complex network and pardon me for overusing complex, but I'll probably be using it a lot in this conversation. Uh, it's a, a rather complex overlap of jurisdictions. So for example, the uh, federal government came out with the infrastructure plan, um, Build Back Better, massive amount of money. But unlike in the UK, in the US, the, the federal government's um, role is basically to distribute and administer money. They're not particularly involved in any of the actual um, construction or conducting major programs. That can happen at the state level, that can happen at the local level, that can happen in public-private partnerships. So you definitely have a very fragmented uh, market for pursuing um, any of these types of, of projects. So then the private side, of course, is, is uh, financed completely differently as well. Why it hasn't made it far enough along or as far along as in the UK Maybe it is because there's not as much of a central actor um, as there is over there. But it's an interesting research question. Maybe we can get uh, convince some of our colleagues at Oxford to take it up. Uh, Jim, yes, T talking about research, and I know you you are really fond of everything um, academic related. Following on what you just said, Jim. Uh, uh, 
um, I think it's really interesting for our listeners who are leaders in major programs to get uh, your knowledge in a bit of sense of your knowledge in uh, the research into major program. Um, and I know that you're fond of many frameworks that help uh, improve major programs. And I was wondering if there was like one framework out of your time in Oxford that you thought was particularly useful uh, to improve the performance of major program. And could you share that with our listeners? Happy to share some of the conclusions I've come to and some of the uh, frameworks I've found more useful uh, than others. Um, of course, the the big challenge is always empirically establishing a framework or uh, trying to apply a framework that's been super successful in one area to another area and see uh, see how it goes. So um, there are a whole bunch out there. I think um, a lot of them are more applicable uh, to certain circumstances than to others. Uh, however, uh, the framework I use for my dissertation in particular is called the Galbraith Star Model. Uh, it's it's been around forever. Uh, primarily applied to uh, ongoing businesses, not necessarily major programs, but uh, we had a professor at Oxford introduce it to us and uh, show how it could be usefully applied to uh, major programs in particular. So sort of extend its range beyond your your typical uh, business consulting practice. So I found that one fairly useful uh, primarily because it's it's sort of simple to conceptualize. It's got, uh, or for those who don't know, it's a five-pointed star. It's got um, several aspects of an organization uh, that all need to be organized in order for the organization to kind of hit its goals or realize its strategy. And in that instance, um, certainly applies in a major program context as well. It's also somewhat um, easy to understand for for people that are used to working in more traditional business environments or sort of more traditionally practicing uh, project management. So things like identifying a strategy or the or the the goal uh, of a major program, and then making sure that you've got a management structure that supports that strategy, and you've got decision processes that help information flow among the people within the structure. The other two areas, uh, which interestingly seem to get next to no attention, are uh, people. So the the which would open up areas of psychology and and uh, behavioral economics and then reward structures. So how do we actually keep our people who are who are working on the project who are compensated in a variety of different ways, whether they're the general contractor or subcontractor or the developer or the municipality or a government official? I mean, everybody's sort of rewarded in different ways. So the question is, are all of those areas sort of aligned in the same direction? so you can accomplish the, the goals of the major program. So I guess the, one of the questions is, what is you know, the, the perfect alignment for a major program? And um, some of the research I did, unfortunately, was inconclusive in, in that area. It doesn't seem that there's a, a single right way to organize a major program, but provided all of those areas are aligned, I think you've certainly got uh, a much better shot of um, finishing one successfully. If I may jump in and uh, follow up because uh, the, the, that framework was a very interesting framework. I was fascinated by that class and having worked in major programs uh, for a big chunk of my career. And I think the for me, the, the light bulb moment was major program as a temporary organization. So although the Galbraith star can be applied to major program, you have to do it through the lens that these are temporary organization. And I think there was a nuance 
of major problem that had never occurred to me. And so as you're designing your organization, you have to keep in mind that you have challenges and opportunities that come with a temporary organization. So in, in your view, how much does that influence the way you're designing a major program organization, the fact that it's a temporary one? Did your, did your research touch upon that? Uh, it did. Um, in fact, I, in some sense, one could look at the defining difference of a major program relative to a permanent organization is the fact that it's temporary. But when you unpack that a little bit and you start to think about what temporary means, um, I'll offer that a lot of the permanent organizations and the permanent organization mindset is far too focused on um, longevity, when we actually don't see companies last as long as some of the major programs that we work on. So even though a major program may be temporary, you know, a beginning and an end, people can work on a single major program for the majority of their career. So they are so long lived um, that their, their temporary aspects may be more of a, a perception necessarily than a you know chronological reality and similarly on the corporate side where people are looking at you know perpetual existence of a corporation that very rarely happens uh, m- most companies could probably benefit from thinking and again this is my opinion so for all the people who own companies out there who think that I'm a fool uh, they're certainly welcome to that perspective but I think companies would probably benefit more uh, by acknowledging volatility and change and sort of the, the temporary um, lifespan of whatever a single strategy is. And maybe the major program world would, would benefit a little bit from looking at their projects more organically uh, because they certainly do evolve over time and less from a, on a sort of linear project management standpoint where point a will never be revisited after we complete it or pass it because we're temporary so we're going a b c d e whereas you're really not you're going a b c d b c a d and then kind of spiraling i'm spiraling it's not the right word but hopefully your project doesn't spiral but uh evolving forward in a non-linear framework so i guess it's a long-winded way of saying yes they're temporary but maybe not as temporary as it's helpful to consider them being, particularly since these projects are supposed to really impact communities for generations. Even if their actual construction or development is somewhat limited, and again, could be decades, but somewhat limited, I think the perception behind uh, their concept and uh, what they're supposed to do for a society is far longer than uh, even most permanent organizations. I mean, the investment we're making in any of these things is really supposed to be generational. Thank you. That, that was an uh, interesting exchange and uh, certainly uh, helped me revisit some of my view about major projects of temporary organization. One of the things that was glaringly obvious in my uh, Dissertation. I mean, there was very little that was glaringly obvious in my dissertation. It was largely failed to support the management frameworks uh, that I had formed based on the literature. But um, interestingly, of the Galbraith principles of the five points of the star, uh, people and rewards barely showed up. 
at all. So there was, a, if you if you think of programs as as we have discussed, having a beginning and an end, whether that's a, an appropriate perspective or not, uh, they certainly do go through phases from concept to you know what, what qualifies as completion. Although I'll offer that they're never really complete, but um, that whole aspect, the people aspect, and the uh, reward aspect explicitly tied towards stakeholders that are involved in the program, kind of a much broader perspective of, of who's actually involved and then rewarding people for their involvement in the success of the program, like completely lacking. It didn't show up at all. I mean, maybe towards the later part of a project, did you start to see some considerations about people and how they were going to use the output of the, of the program, but really in the beginning, it was all strategy and structure related. I mean, it just didn't even show up. The, the programs were so myopically focused on um, on this strategy thing that they never really, at least in my research, uh, exhibited any consideration for uh, people and rewards. So you got another area of research that's probably worth considering there. That, that, that's interesting. So your, your research showed that major programs don't take the time to design a compensation structure and a reward structure to align the interest of the project with the interest of the leadership and, 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 and individuals yeah, really, involved. It really, anybody. I mean, there's, there's certainly incentive-based compensation mechanisms at the corporate level. Uh, you know, risk-based, you come across this all the time, whether you're delivering a turnkey project or, you know, cost plus or G max or whatever the, the structure happens to be relative to the contractor. But in my experience, uh, particularly if it's a major program within an organization. So we worked in a program, uh, or I did with a, a, another friend of mine where a company was digitalizing their entire, um, basically production stream. So it was within, uh, almost exclusively within an organization, although obviously it touched on some external partners as well. Um, but there was no bonus incentive. There was no reward structure. There was no career path, uh, you know, sort of advancement onto greater challenges or responsibility for implementing the program successfully. I mean, it was literally like your job is to do it and, uh, Good luck. <laughs> well, we'll be back in touch if things go wrong. So uh, that to me, that to me seems like an opportunity to to pull people in the same direction. Um, one acknowledge more broadly the breadth of the the stakeholders that are influenced, and then within the program aligning some of those reward incentives, which may or may not need to be monetary, but um, aligning those reward incentives within the program to see it completed successfully. Yeah, I can. It, it kind of resonates, and it, it makes sense. That's certainly my anecdotal experience. And when you know, when you think of a major program, you think, you know, stakeholders have a lot of influence on the success of a major programs. I've never seen in the few one, the few major programs I've been involved with, an alignment of the project leadership to the stakeholders. So you know, you you could have a situation where you could have engagement with stakeholders and measuring and getting the feedback on how the project is delivering against their needs and aligning the compensation of, of the leadership to the stakeholder needs. Because we know from our study that uh, stakeholders can derail a major program and then and, and stakeholder management is key 
So there should be a metric that should be aligned. Sure. And they're also a tremendous asset to a program too. Um, The coordination takes a huge amount of resources and it can be very frustrating. Uh, particularly from a project management standpoint where there's a, there's a tendency to, to go, 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 go. So any sort of these, these stakeholder in, um, intervention points, I think have probably traditionally been viewed as a burden to the program, whereas leveraging um, resources of a community, and this comes up a lot in my native state of Maine, uh, particularly with some um, offshore wind programs, recognizing uh, the support and resources that the local community can provide is a pretty big step. We've got um, these offshore wind communities obviously touch a lot of uh, sea-based industries, uh, fishermen, marine biologists, uh, obviously the electricity company, uh, but also shipping, uh, manufacturing base, uh, um, quality jobs within the state of Maine. I mean, these are huge opportunities that touch so many different aspects of society. Um, And that can be positively influenced by them. But you kind of have to start with that first perspective that there are a lot of people involved um, that have a lot to contribute. So engage them early and often. And you should have a better program. Music to my ears. Corail? Over to you again um, with your series of questions. Um, I wanted to go back to a more personal question now. Um, What do you love most uh, about your work and about setting up a consultancy in in the major program industry? Um, I think what would be interesting is to know more about you um, and what, what does it take to be a major program leader? More about me professionally, personally, what attracts me to it, what, uh, um, I mean, we can go down a rabbit hole here. (laughs) I'd be interested, uh, to know more about you personally and, uh, you know, understanding better. What do you love uh, about your job? What drives you to this field? Um, and yeah, what, what's, what is your passion? So big, big question, uh, Obviously, limited time in a in a podcast format, so I'll I'll try to be as specific as possible. But what what drew me to the real estate industry in particular, despite my best efforts to avoid getting into what had been a family business for years, um, was how well, multifaceted is probably an overused description, but how many areas real estate touched uh, any sort of construction project, which sort of, you know, goes back to the, the broader stakeholder engagement perspective, but also the number of disciplines that are, are had to be involved in any successful project from architecture to engineering, to finance, to, uh, delivery, to sales. I mean, there, there's not a lot of pigeonholing within real estate. People have to be somewhat familiar with a great number of things in order to have a project delivered successfully. So, um, you know, personally, I like the breadth of uh, knowledge and the breadth of engagement and the opportunity to use a whole bunch of different skills without diving maybe sufficiently deeply into any of them. Uh, my background, certainly, as I mentioned, finance, and there's that, that's sort of an obvious area one could focus on. But what I discovered over my career is that any subject such as finance is really, again, back more to being about the constituent stakeholders involved in the finance process. 
So I can run spreadsheets all day long. I can make them say whatever you want. I can regress to the mean. I can calculate internal rates of return. But what really matters is the people within the transaction. You know, what, they, what is their perspective? If I'm a lender going into a project, what, yes, I want my money payback. Yes, I want interest to, to uh, be generated on the loan. I mean, all of these things are, are fairly cut and dry, but what does it actually mean for the loan officer, the person that you're working with on a day-to-day basis? You know, how does your program fit within the larger context of the organization that's lending you the money? So even within something that seems like it would be as, as specific and cut and dried as finance is really a far broader and more interesting opportunity to connect with people that have a vested interest in the project. I think that is one of the things that's most appealing about um, being, at least for me personally, being in a consulting practice or forming a consulting practice. Uh, or I'll say the second most interesting thing is uh, the the breadth of engagement and the number of uh, different subjects and aspects of major programs that um, you get to touch and sort of have to acknowledge uh, at a minimum to deliver services to your clients. But hands down, the most rewarding thing is the people I get to work with. So. Um, and Oxford definitely raised that bar in terms of professionalism and capability of, of the people on the teams. So does that answer the question? People and diversity of subjects, maybe? You sold it to me, so all good. Oh, good. Uh, should I point you to our website? Because we're <laughs> always looking for new clients. You should. You should. What's, what's your website? The company is called Two Roads Group. Uh, website is TWO. R-O-A-D-S-G-R-P dot com. Um, as you mentioned, we've got partners in Dublin and London and here in the States. So I won't get into the story of the name. I'm not that ro- I'm not romantic enough to do justice to it. But um, yeah. Why well, not challenge? Now you have to. Now yeah, I have you, have you, to. you said <laughs> now you too have much, to. Jim. All right. Um, <laughs> so... Robert Frost, former poet laureate of the United States and a fine New Englander, uh, wrote a, a poem called Two Roads. And uh, the ending stanza is Two Roads Diverged in a Yellow Wood. And I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. So when we start to think about major programs and adjusting uh, the perspective, we try to bring in that road less traveled, the, the opportunity to make all the difference by looking at um, traditional forms of delivering major programs and, and offering some alternatives that hopefully will make a material difference. That's amazing. Thank you, Jim. Um, Very nice. And by the way, the, um, the link to, to your website will be in the show notes and uh, in the episode description. So the listener can, can find the, uh, the details if, if they couldn't write it down quickly enough. Okay. Um, I think we're coming towards the the end uh, of the podcast. Uh, Corel, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll I'll ask the final question to Jim. And so, Jim, in, in your mind, what what would be the dream major program? What 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 would that look like? There has to so so the absolute dream program under you know sort of all circumstances uh, for me would be impact related particularly related to climate change and the natural environment. Having grown up in Maine and actually sitting in Maine now looking at the ocean, I think maybe uh, Maine culture is somewhat uniquely attuned to or dependent upon the natural world. So given all the climate-related challenges that uh, everybody acknowledges that we have now, fortunately, any project that uh, influences 
um, basically preservation of the natural world is, is to me hugely meaningful. So whether it's delivering clean energy, whether it's um, considering different ways of funding, climate-related initiatives, reef preservation. Uh, I'm being a little coy because we just bid on a project recently that had some of these characteristics, but uh, since it hasn't been awarded yet, I can't get into too many details. But basically, the opportunity to use the inherent transformational aspects of a major program to to improve any of a number of, of situations, uh, particularly around climate change. Very nice. Okay, I think um, we we come to the end of the podcast. Um, Correll, any 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 final thoughts from you? I just uh, I'm thinking that if every leader uh, were interesting in the same topics as you, Jim, uh, we wouldn't be in the situation we are today. So um, I hope you're an inspiration for all our listeners, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much, Karel, for co-hosting the podcast with me. Thank you, Jim, for um, joining us in this uh, conversation, always a stimulating conversation uh, with you and, and Karel. Uh, any final thoughts from you, Jim? It's, uh, it's an exciting world. Major programs are uh, definitely a topic not only worth studying, but uh, fascinating to work in. So I encourage everybody who's got the chance to consider the topic and, and get involved. And on that... Thank you very much for joining us this week and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye now. Thank you. That's it for this episode of Navigating Major Problems. I hope you found today's conversation as informative and thought-provoking as I did. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing and leaving a review. I would also like to personally invite you to continue the conversation by joining me on my personal LinkedIn at Ricardo Cosentino. Listening to the next episode, where we will continue to explore the latest trends and challenges in major program management. Our next in-depth conversation promises to continue to dive into topics such as leadership, risk management, and the impact of emerging technology in infrastructure. It's a conversation you're not going to want to miss. Thanks for listening to Navigating Major Programs, and I look forward to keeping the conversation going.